Imagine you have a painting hanging on your wall. It's huge. A beautiful mess of paint and color, reds and blues and big splotches of white strewn across the canvas. It hangs in your living room and at every dinner party, you try to work it into the conversation because you're so proud. You're proud because it's by one of the most famous artists in history, Jackson Pollock. And you spend $17 million buying this painting. Of course you're going to brag about it. Now, imagine you're having money troubles. You're going through a nasty divorce, and we all know how those things can be expensive, so you need to raise some funds. You decide to sell the painting, but it's hard to let go of it. It means so much to you and your dinner party guests. But how else are you going to get $17 million? So you send it to Christie's to be valued. It's the world's most prestigious auction house. After they've had the painting for a bit, they send you an email. It contains the results of some forensic testing where they test the paint in the painting. All auction houses do this before selling a painting of this value. I mean, if you're going to auction a $17 million painting, you need to make sure it's real. So you open the email, read through the boring stuff at the top, then get to those results of the forensic tests. Those tests that tell you the paint in the painting dates back to 1970. There's only one problem with that, though. On August 11th, Jackson Pollock had one too many drinks. He got behind the wheel of his convertible, made it one mile from his house before flipping the car, killing himself and one of his passengers. The year? 1956. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest scandals in history and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we travel to the rarefied and some would say pretentious world of fine art and find a story where what you see is not necessarily what you should believe. It's a tale of how one woman found a gold mine, a story of greed, corruption, and an $80 million con. In fact, it was one of the biggest frauds in the history of the art world. This story begins on the Upper East Side of New York City, that old venerated place where all the aged money people live in New York. It's one of those neighborhoods where you walk by all of these fancy shops and you wonder how they really make money. And one of those places is a gallery on East 70th Street called the Nodler. It was the second oldest gallery in the country. That's Martha Parrish. She's actually not from the Upper East Side. Which is why you hear grits in my voice. We're both from the South, so the hospitable thing is to engage in general conversation before you get down to business. And so the first 10 minutes were taken up with us talking about grits. Let me tell you, if you know New York City, on the corner of 73rd and um, 3rd is a diner called EJ's. Mm. And they serve really good grits. Really? In New York? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to check it out. And I'm at, if it's not up to par, I'm going to I'm gonna have to call you on it. Good grits in New York is still hard for me to believe. But this isn't why we're talking to Martha. <laughs> Indeed. So... Uh, for the sake of the recording, if you could uh, just tell me your name and what it is that 
you do within the context of this story? Uh, my name is Martha Parrish, and I am a retired art gallery owner. I had a gallery in New York City for many years, was an expert witness for the prosecution in the DeSole Nodler trial. As you can tell, Martha's been around the city a long time. I'm 81 years old, and, you know, I'm uh, sort of an old war horse, <laughs> if you want to know the truth. Martha's basically seen everything, and she says the Nodler Gallery really always had this special place in our world in New York. It represented Winslow Homer. It represented John Singer Sargent. Those are two of the most famous artists in American history. Homer's actually thought of as really the first American painter. One of the greatest exhibitions I ever saw at Nodler was a very small one they held in their basement in which they put some of their archival material out. There was a letter from Homer saying, dear whoever was at Nodler then, I'm really wanting my check for $200 for my watercolor. When am I going to get it? Nodler soon established itself as one of the most venerable galleries in New York and in America. But as the 20th century went on, a whole lot of stuff changed in the world, including the New York art scene. Galleries were moving downtown. The Upper East Side, old money, aristocrats, that was no longer the place to be. Nodler stayed put on East 70th Street. Which meant that Nodler, once the go-to gallery for all things fine art, was now thought of as being a bit old-fashioned, a relic. It was being replaced by the cooler, younger, hipper galleries downtown. And then one day, a well-dressed woman who wore white trouser suits and pashminas walked into the gallery and changed Nodler's world forever. To understand how this woman would change Nodler's world, we first have to meet the central character in our story. In the 90s, the gallery replaced its old director, who had been there so long, it seemed like he might actually know Winslow Homer himself. In his place came a young dealer, a woman just out of college named Ann Friedman. Ann knew her way around the art scene and didn't take as much notice of the social mores of the stuffy old Upper East Side art world. She would go up to clients and sell at cocktail parties. She was good at selling paintings. That was really valuable for the Nodler Gallery because at this point they were losing out. The gallery was old and it was stuffy, but Ann came in and was helping to bring it into the modern age. But there was a problem. You see, Nodler was an old gallery, and a lot of the kinds of paintings they sold were old paintings. Paintings from the 19th century. They weren't sexy or fashionable at this point. People were into abstract art. You know, modernism and expressionism, postmodernism, all the isms. And Nodler didn't have any of that. And that's when this well-dressed woman, this woman in a white trouser suit, a fashionable pashmina scarf, walks into the gallery carrying a gold mine that would end up changing Ann Friedman and Nodler's world forever. That's coming up after this short break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that. 
trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. The person who brought the paintings to Anne was a woman who really wasn't known in the art world. She lived in Long Island. It has been said at one time or another that she had a gallery, but I don't know that that's true. This woman's name is Glafira Rosales, and she's walked into the gallery that day with a painting. A painting by one of the 20th century's most sought-after artists, Marth Rothko. Now, this kind of art really isn't my jam, so it's difficult for me to understand why rich people would travel thousands of miles across the world, but I'm gonna try to describe this painting for you. It is a white canvas with a navy blue square above a red square, and that's it. (laughs) So back to the story. Here's Glafira standing with this painting. And she's asking Anne if she wants to buy it. Anne did what all good art dealers do and asked where the painting had come from. Anne knew her Rothko, but she didn't know this Rothko. Glafira said that she was representing the heir of a collector who had come to New York in the 50s and 60s and purchased a number of paintings directly from the artists and had left and taken the pictures back with him to Switzerland. Glafira didn't want to give the name of this collector. She said she wanted to preserve his anonymity. So she just called him Mr. X. At this point, Anne is over the moon. Here's this woman who has brought her a Rothko, a big towering Rothko. And Anne knew immediately the thing was valuable. She consulted some experts, showed them a sketch of the painting, and she was convinced that it was the real deal. She asked to meet this Mr. X, but Glafira was insistent that he remain anonymous. And so Anne went with it. She felt like the story checked out and she was convinced by what the experts had told her. So she buys the painting for $700,000. But get this, the next day, she sells this painting for $17 million. I'm in the wrong business. And as you can imagine, this is a community that is built on, you know, trust and relationships. But she was an unknown entity. That didn't bother Anne Friedman. This is Emily Riesbaum. I am a partner in the law firm of Cleric Garon Ricebaum. Emily claims that what Anne saw in Glafira was a potential treasure trove. And the Rothko was just the start of it. Turns out this Mr. X, this mysterious collector, was in possession of some of the world's great lost masterpieces. It seems like to be an endless supply of 
previously unknown, undiscovered works by the most famous artists. There were six Rothkos. Five by Pollock. Painting after painting. That no one had ever seen of. There was no written record of them. And they kept coming. It was like there was no limit. And it wasn't just Anne who fell in love. Art historians were googly-eyed over these paintings. Every time she got a new one, Anne would invite these experts into the gallery to take a look. They were practically salivating over these things. There was just one small problem lurking in the background. Can you walk me through what the roles and responsibilities of an art dealer are? Well, I would add one word to that question. The question should be, what are the roles and responsibilities of a responsible art dealer? And those involve a number of things. One, that the work that you are selling is what you say it is. In the art world, they use a word to describe this process, provenance. And I'm going to give you an example of a perfect provenance. And I'll use Nodler Gallery as an example. Winslow Homer was represented by Nodler. Martha says, imagine Homer painted a picture in 1898, a little watercolor, and he sends it to Nodler. And they sell it to someone who lives in Boston. When that person dies, the painting gets passed down to his son. The painting then is descending in this same family. And let's say in 1960, the man came back to Nodler and said, I don't want this watercolor anymore. Will you sell it? So Nodler sells the painting. So this record continues. It could go to auction. It can be exhibited in a museum with other Winslow homers. You have no reason to worry about that picture. It has such a perfect history slash provenance. You know the whole story of the painting from the moment it left the artist's easel to now. Maybe 100 years later, it's a story, a history. In the case of the Nodler pictures, they had none of that. No one was really sure where these paintings actually came from. None of the pictures had provenances, histories. None of them had labels on the back to indicate that they were in exhibitions or had been reproduced in any publications. These works had never been seen before. It's like they were newly discovered. Great works by some of the world's most famous artists, but no one had seen them. The story Glyphira told Anne, it went something like this. One day in the 1950s, a mysterious Swiss man arrived in New York. There, he got involved in its burgeoning gay scene and met a young gallery owner named David Herbert. He got into a relationship with Herbert and Herbert took him to studios all around town where he met all of these huge artists. Pollock, Robert Motherwell, Mark Rothko. This man, who now went by the moniker Mr. X, was rich and bought the paintings. But then his romance with Herbert ended. He got cold feet about his new life in New York and decided to return to Switzerland, to his wife and family, with the paintings in hand. These paintings were kept secret for 50 years, until both Mr. X and Herbert were dead. Then Mr. X's son decided to sell them, and he came to Glyphira Rosales. She went to Nodler and met Ann Friedman. But the problem was, 
there was nothing written down. No real paper trail, and the story kept changing. First, the paintings were brought to Rosales by a Mexican dealer. Then this guy David Herbert came into the picture and the Mexican dealer disappeared. It was confusing and convoluted. There were red flags about these paintings everywhere you looked. They were flying so high that you could hardly see anything but red. That's coming up after the break. Um, hi, I'm Patricia Cohen, and I work for the New York Times. Um, I And just, just, just for my sake, I, I've been calling you Pat. Do you go by Pat or Patty or do you have a preference? Uh, Patty. Patty, okay. That's our producer, Melissa, asking the questions. All right. Patty so, is a longtime reporter at the New York Times and has covered the art world for years. Actually, the first thing that caught my attention was a lawsuit that was brought by the foundation that represented Robert Motherwell. Motherwell is another giant of the U.S. art world. Glafira brought a number of his paintings to Anne. This foundation Patty is talking about wanted to take a look. At first, they were convinced. They seemed like the real deal. But then when you had another one and another one, they started getting suspicious. Like, how could these paintings just turn up out of the blue? And anyway, they became involved in a lawsuit that questioned the authenticity of a painting and ended up hiring a paint specialist who discovered that some of the paint that was actually used had not even been invented, essentially, when that painting was supposedly created. That's when Patty got on the story. The head of the Motherwell Foundation is Jack Flam. So I have to be honest, when I first heard the name Jack Flam, I thought of a bootleg Jason Bourne, not so much a guy involved in the bougie art world. Anyway, Jack Flam rings up Patty and says, you know, Nodler isn't just selling fake Motherwell. He began to kind of put it all together and started calling around. It suddenly became very clear, like, oh, this is not some singular anomaly or some unusual question here and there, but it was popping up all over. And so Patty starts to dig deeper. And so I had been working on the story actually for a couple of months. Um, and then I had, uh, you know, another source who had contacted me kind of indicating that that something was wrong. But just before Patty is ready to publish her big investigation, something happens that changes everything. The collector we talked about at the top of this episode, the collector with the $17 million Pollock, well, he decided to come out as gay and divorce his wife. And this was the moment when this story, a story confined to whispers around the art world, burst into the open. He was divorcing his wife and uh, had gone to Christie's to sell it. To sell the painting. And basically, Christie's would not accept it. And so what happened was he started to negotiate with the Nodler Gallery. And then finally, after not getting, you know, satisfaction. Satisfaction meaning not getting his $17 million back. Brought a lawsuit. And then the next day, Nodler announced it was closing. Closing. The oldest gallery in New York. You know, this all came up really quickly. So I did a very quick story just kind of announcing that here, the oldest gallery in New York was closing. But knowing that I had this kind of gigantic story <laughs> um, brewing in the back and then a, a day or so later, I was finally able to kind of put together all the pieces. And then we published this front page story basically saying that 
there was a lot of allegations of fraud. And at that time, actually, we didn't. Nobody knew the extent of it. They soon found out. All of these people who had bought these paintings were like, wait a second, I bought one of those. So once that became public, a lot of people just found out by reading the Times that day that, wow, we may have a multi-million dollar forgery hanging on our living room wall. One of the people picking up the paper that day was a couple by the name of Eleanor and Domenico de Soleil. They were wealthy collectors. Domenico used to be the chair of Sotheby's, so he knew his way around the art world. They recently purchased a beautiful Rothko, or what was said to be a Rothko, from Anne Friedman. And now they were on the warpath. So they come to you, the de Soleil's come to you, and they claim that they've been victims of fraud. They've been, they've been sold this, this fake art. And at what point did you say, yeah, this, this, isn't, this isn't right? We knew pretty much right away. Here's Emily Reisbaum again, who we heard from earlier in this episode. She was the lawyer Eleanor and Domenico turned to in their hour of need. And we knew for a couple of reasons. One is... Uh, There had been an earlier news story in the New York Times about another painting that another collector had bought from the Nodler Gallery. And the article in the story revealed that the provenance of his painting, where it had come from, was the exact same provenance story that Anne Friedman had pitched to our clients, Eleanor and Domenico de Sole. And if the other painting was fake, we had a strong suspicion that Eleanor and Domenico's painting was also fake, and we immediately had it sent for forensic testing. And the forensic testing confirmed that it was fake. It, but Emily, you have to admit, though, those were pretty good damn fakes. <laughs> they were. Well, you know, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. I mean, I'm not in the art world, but just on first blush, I'm like, wow. Sure. And they fooled a lot of people. And and that was, we think, and we argued in court and we think the evidence showed that was part of the whole scheme was that the works look good, so they passed. But if you knew the backstory, they didn't pass. So the question you're probably asking yourself at this point is, why did these paintings look so good? Well, just before the trial, there was a federal investigation into the paintings, and specifically into the woman who had brought the paintings to Anne Friedman and to the Nodler Gallery, Glafira Rosales. What that investigation found was pretty crazy. The story goes something like this. In the 1990s, a Chinese artist, a guy called Pei Shen Chen, started selling his art on the streets of Lower Manhattan. He recently arrived from the island city of Zushan in Shanghai, Then one day, Glafira Rosales was in Lower Manhattan. She said to this artist, your paintings, they look so real. I was wondering if you could try and make some paintings in the style of some American artists. This was the start of it all. Over the next 15 years, this artist turned out at least 63 drawings and paintings that carried the signature of people like Jackson Pollock, Robert Motherwell, and Mark Rothko. And he was not copying. They would give him um, monographs of these artists. They'd give him two or three books with 
Franz Klein pictures or de Kooning or Pollock. And they say, now we want you to make a picture that's that would look like one of these, but not be exact. You can't copy it. And he was good. And it was these paintings that Glafira brought to Ann Friedman, who then sold them for a total of $80 million, the biggest collection of fake paintings ever in the history of the art world. So that was the scam. The FBI was clear that Glafira, this Long Island art dealer with the white pashmina, was heading it up, and that the painter was this Chinese artist from Shanghai. But there was one person missing from their indictment. Are you confident that Ann Friedman was fully aware that these paintings were fake? Well, as we argued in court, and as we said, the evidence showed, Ann Friedman was fully aware of all of the bad facts about the paintings. She, she, she knew all of them. None of them were hidden from her. Um, she did not share those bad facts with her customers, with the art world, or with the public. To be clear, Emily's not saying here that Anne was in on the scam, that she was planning it all with Glafira. What she's saying is that Anne had to have known, or should have known, that there were problems with these paintings. She knew the provenance was shaky. She knew there were experts out there who doubted the paintings were even real. And she also knew that there was something up about Glafira. First, she had no real history as an art dealer especially dealing with paintings of this level. And that wasn't all that was suspicious about her. In 1998, Rosales starts demanding that Nodler pay her partially in cash. I mean, when people start asking to be paid in cash, that's a classic tip-off that something ain't right. And these cash payments were required to be just under the sum of $10,000 in order to evade the IRS requirement. So they were like $9,000 or 9000 and change. And Nodler paid Rosales these cash payments with, you know, a wad of cash in an envelope 28 times. And she didn't tell anybody that she was doing that. I could see that being a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> As we argued in court and we had a slide with like sort of all of these red flags over the chronology of the fraud. And there are dozens of them. And again, she knows them, but she's not sharing them. So for us, the question was, well, if you believe in the paintings, what are you hiding? That's exactly what Emily and her team were asking in the trial. They were determined to show that Nodler, and therefore Anne, was culpable. In order to do that, they knew they needed to turn to an expert witness someone who had known the art world in New York for a long time, a dealer who could shed light on this murky world of big money and pretty pictures. And when, when you were asked to be a part of this trial, what compelled you to say yes? Because I'd felt for so many years that art dealers got a really bum rap, a lot of them. I mean, some of the people that I did business with uh, wound up in jail. One day, someone said to me, well, you're just a rug merchant. Well, I'm, I'm sure they're very responsible rug merchants, but I didn't like that designation. 
And so I decided that this was something that was meaningful to me, that I wanted to do it. And do, do you do you feel in the aftermath of this case that damage has been done to the reputation of the world of art dealing? Probably not. And Friedman is currently running a gallery and selling paintings. Didn't seem to hurt her. Do you think it's fair that Anne Friedman is still out there dealing in art? I don't think my opinion matters. The trial ended halfway through. Before the defense even took the stand, a settlement was reached. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'll ask it. Um, Who came to who? Well, who came to whom for the settlement? Who initiated the settlement in order to end the proceedings? Uh, It was not us. Well, there you have it. (laughs) Anne never took the stand. The reason Anne tried so hard to prove that these were right, as we say in the, in the pictures, right or wrong. And she wanted them to be right. And what she did was based on her desire to keep up with the art world that, that was changing radically. And I think she just felt like this was her ticket to staying in the game. And so she was just paddling as hard as she could upstream and and just didn't, she wasn't worrying about what was to come. I guess, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And you know the painting that isn't, that has the misspelled uh, artist's name is in her apartment. Yeah, you heard that right. A small painting sold by Glafira Rosales with a signature of Jackson Pollock, misspelled by the way, still hangs in Anne's apartment. So she got that off the market. Why? Why did she take that home when it was misspelled? No artist misspells its name. I've never seen that, ever. But blaming Anne for all of this maybe misses the bigger picture. The story of an art fraud seems complicated, but at its heart, it's actually quite simple. It's really about believing the thing you're looking at is really the thing that you're looking at. At the end of this story, it isn't just Ann Friedman who was fooled. It was also experts, gallery owners, journalists, and buyers. I mean, how do we place value on things in the first place? Just because it's expensive, does it mean it's worth it? A lot of us associate price with quality and quality with acceptance. Perhaps this need to have expensive things and to be accepted results in a culture where scams and cheats can flourish. In the end, though, maybe it's too hard to admit when you've been duped. This is kind of uh, just a personal interest. Like, I studied philosophy Mm -hmm. in graduate school. And so I'm curious as to what you would think. Let's say there's a world in which Anne Freeman didn't know. Do you think she should be punished because someone in her position should have known? So you're asking a hypothetical question. 
Yes. Um, and I guess the reason I ask is if you've made it to that station in that career. And so I guess the philosophical question is, in an abstract way, where on the spectrum of ignorance should someone be held accountable? Well, I think at a certain point, you know, if someone turns a blind eye and hides behind that to say they didn't know something, I think it's fair to question that. Right. So there's a difference between not knowing and not wanting to know. Glafira Rosales was arrested and pleaded guilty to money laundering and tax evasion. She served three months in a federal prison. Pei Shen Chen, the artist who was alleged to have painted the forgeries, was indicted but fled to China and was never prosecuted. In the end, Anne Friedman was a defendant in 10 lawsuits that all settled. She was never charged with any crime. She has always denied any part in the plot to defraud. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. You can leave a rating and review if you don't like what we're doing, but we prefer you keep that to yourself. Uh, no, I don't. Because, good or bad, we'd like to hear what you think. It helps other people discover the show, and we want more listeners. Next time on Cheat, it's the British Army major accused of carrying out a million-pound heist live on TV. You never expected a British Army serving major to come on television in a great big close-up and try and steal a million pounds. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Melissa Kaplan. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. The executive producer is Tom Koenig. Engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Lizzie Jacobs, and Ella McLeod. <laughs>